What does biblical ministry look like? Both on a corporate and an individual level. What should our lives look like? What should this church look like? What are the things that make our hearts move? What motivates us? When motivated, how do we then express our love for the Lord? All of these are questions our passage answers. I want to challenge all of us to examine ourselves today and ask, does my life look like a biblical ministry? Does my home look like a biblical ministry? Does our church look like a biblical ministry? Acts is going to give us some beautiful pictures of what a true biblical ministry looks like. And I pray that it won't just be standing out and looking and judging other ministries, but more importantly, evaluating our own hearts. Does our lives reflect a biblical understanding of ministry? Do we serve? Do we pursue? Do we do the things that God requires and expects out of us as biblical followers or followers of Jesus? Last week we saw in our passage in Acts chapter 1 that the Lord's ministry was reviewed in verses 1 to 3. And then we saw the Lord's promise presented in verses 4 to 5, talking about the Holy Spirit. And we began discussing the Lord's charge conveyed in verses 6 to 8. Now today we're going to see the transition from the time of the Lord's personal presence to His ascension and the apostles being left alone to carry on the mission. This is a time of transition from Jesus being the primary leader to the disciples, uh, or rather the apostles being the primary leaders of the followers of Jesus. Jesus is still their Lord, but now... He will lead from heaven. The apostles take their position of authority on earth. Now, they do accomplish this role by the Holy Spirit's empowerment. Yet, it is interesting, we get a little glimpse into a ten-day window before, after the ascension and before Pentecost where it shows you what these men are about. They are still regenerate followers of Jesus, born-again believers. And yet the baptism of the Holy Spirit hasn't happened, but the Spirit is obviously still at work. It is important that in this stage or in this period from verses 6 down through the end of chapter 1, we see these men and what they're all about. The transition of power, for lack of a better term, The idea that these men would become the authorities or the mouthpiece for Jesus, their king. In our passage, there are two foundational truths given for us to meditate on and think about. They are two foundational concepts concerning a biblical ministry. Our setting is the transition period, like I said, between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost. I call them foundational truths because they are crucial for the establishment of the church. But these foundational truths, ladies and gentlemen, are also 
crucial for the establishment of new church plants and the continuation of every church. These are foundational concepts that we must all adhere to. And this is what this church must be about also. They are foundational truths for a biblical church ministry today also. Let's look at these two foundational truths found in our passage. First, there's the right motivations of a biblical ministry. And second, the right expressions of a biblical ministry. Let's start with the right motivations of a biblical ministry. This is found in verses 6 to 11. Again, we see in chapter 1, verse 6, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, or epochs, some would say, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up. And while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. We see in this passage the primary motivations for a biblical ministry. We see what should be the driving influence of everything we do here at Grace Bible Church. And ultimately some of the same driving influences for each of you in your homes. And at your jobs. We also see what should be the primary motivations for each of us individually in this church. We are giving in this verse the answer to why we do what we do in these verses. Why do we do what we do? We see there are three right motivations revealed in this passage for a biblical ministry. We see the imminent return of Christ the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and the incredible glory of the message. These are the things that should drive us. These biblical truths are our motivations. We start with the imminent return of Christ. This is a motivation that should drive every one of us in the room. Jesus said in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or epoch which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The Lord established here from the very beginning that the Lord's return could happen at any moment. The apostles were not given a time. They were said, Be ready. And that is a very important driving motivation for hopefully all of us. In our world, we're told that we can live forever. (laughs) Basically, don't think about the end. Don't think about the reality that Jesus could come back. And if if somebody does talk about the return of Christ, it becomes some great speculation about this is the end of the the world, and, and it becomes more of a speculation than a real understanding that Jesus could return at any minute. So last week's... After our, my serve, or after our service, I was asked 
for that word, and I'm probably even pronouncing it wrong, epics or epochs or in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. I was asked, what does that word epochs mean? Somebody asked, in, in effect, does it mean periods of rulership by a people group? So I was asked, in effect, is it possible that the word epoch is possibly pointing to Jesus correcting the apostles for their wrong eschatology? When they ask, in effect, is this the time when, G- when Israel will be restored, is Jesus maybe using that word to say, look, you just don't get it at all. You're off the mark. Is that what he's talking about? Is it possible that Jesus was saying to the disciples, you're off the, raw, you're off the mark on Israel's role in the consummation of the kingdom? So I did a little bit more research, and I want to kind of fill, fill you in with some of the stuff that I found. I am completely convinced even more now that that is talking about time. Times or epochs. And, and I found both words are definitely dealing with time. Kronos and kairos are the Greek words, and both of those words point to time. Jesus said to the disciples, It is not for you to know the chronology of time or the period of time which the Father has fixed by His own authority. So ultimately He is saying, Beloved, He's very clear in His answer. Jesus is saying, You're not supposed to know the time. He didn't tell them. He does not say, you're off the mark about the future for Israel. He says, in effect, no doubt about it, it is not for you to know when or how long before the time when Israel is restored. So no matter how you look at this, this does point to the reality of a restoration of Israel. I think this is another very clear passage that points to the future for Israel, like Romans 11 and Revelation chapter 7. And you say, well, Mike, why are you making such a big deal? Well, because I think it does play into this idea of us understanding that at any time Jesus could return, and that's how God established it at the beginning of the church. Why is that so important? Again, this is an answer from Jesus to the question, when? His answer is not, you guys are off your rockers on understanding of the coming of restoration of Israel. Instead, his answer is this. You are not allowed to know when the restoration of Israel will happen or how long a period of time before the restoration of Israel will happen, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Why is this so important? Well, it's because the apostles needed to know and be firmly aware that at any moment Jesus could return. And you need to know that too. That is a primary motivation for all of us. Listen, it is mentioned throughout the epistles. The apostles continue to bring up this concept that Jesus could return at any minute. Why is that important? Philippians 3.20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. What's the idea? At any moment, Jesus could return and we could be changed. We need to know that. It is a driving motivation for the church. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, 
He says, For they themselves report, talking about the church in Thessalonica, about us, what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to stir, serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. What do we need to know? Jesus could come back at any minute. I'm, I'm convinced that this is something that we should all be looking forward to. We should all be anticipating at any moment he could return and he could rescue us from the wrath to come. Revelation twenty two seventeen, it says, The spirit and the bride say, what? Come. This is the mindset of a believer. We are constantly saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And in twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Does everybody say, Amen, come, Lord Jesus? Why is that so important? Why is it that we long for His return? Why are we constantly looking for His return? Because that is our joy. Our delight is to see him step out on the clouds to be with him forever. That's what we want. That's what we long for. And this knowledge motivates us to live differently. I believe the angels were emphasizing the same thing. Look back at Acts. When they were saying to the disciples who stood watching Jesus ascend into heaven, the angels said, in effect, wake up, men. Do what Jesus said to do because, hey, he's going to... return he's going to come back in effect obey him in light of his return his imminent return it could come again folks i'm convinced if we live every minute knowing jesus could return at any minute our behavior will be a lot different would not everybody agree with this if you knew that before this service was out he was going to return Will we do things different? Interesting. How many of us would jump out of our seats and run to call our relatives and our friends and give the gospel to them? I'm sure we would depend upon the Lord more, wouldn't we? We would trust Him more. We would seek Him more. Wouldn't we obey Him more? If we knew at any minute he was going to show up, I would do, okay, what do you want me to do right now? Procrastination goes out the window when Jesus is on our mind that he could come back at any moment. Is that not true? So the first motivation of a biblical ministry is a full awareness of the imminent return of Jesus. He could return at any moment, so be ready. And doesn't this motivate us? Are you ready? That's a great question, isn't it? Are you ready for him to return? Do you want to meet him? Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready for your life to be put on display at the judgment seat of Christ? How about that? Are you looking forward to the day when he says, Well done, good and faithful servant, or are you shuddering, thinking, Man, i got a lot to clean up? 
Are you ready for His return? That's what believers do. We, we are motivated by the reality of His return at any minute. We act different. Second, the second motivation seen here is the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And again, I'm, I'm so encouraged by this. Look at this. And He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. When we look at this again, you don't know when is what Jesus says, but. And there's an emphatic but in verse 8. You see that? But you will receive power. You don't know when. So keep that in reality that he could come at any time. But I've got good news. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Beloved, this is both an objective motive or this is an objective motivation. And it's also something that we can't get our hands completely around. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that in a second. They could know for a fact that God was going to empower them to accomplish all that He called them to do. God was literally going to indwell them in order to empower them for ministry. This would motivate them, wouldn't it? And it does. Notice they go back to Jerusalem afterwards. We'll see in a little bit. They obey Him. Again, knowing the Spirit was with them, was going to be, and was going to be in them, motivated them. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, you remember? Everybody knows those verses. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right? How does he end it? I'll give you the old Nasby. Lo, I am with you always. That is a gigantic motivation for the believer. Understanding that God is with us is what moves us to do what we're supposed to do. Listen, it is what gets me up in the morning. It's what makes me walk up here. And it should be what makes you do what you do. Knowing that God is with you through the Spirit is what does it. I love the Holy Spirit because He moves me to be who I am in Christ. I could not obey without Him. You understand? I can't and you can't either. I would not obey Him without Him. You understand? I would not love without Him. I would not rejoice without Him. I would not sacrifice without Him, and neither would you. We just don't. We need the Spirit. And the good news is, is we have Him. (laughs) We have Him. The Spirit indwells and lives and works within every believer. Isn't that glorious news? So I'm motivated, aren't you? Let's go obey the King. Why? Because I can now. Because i got the Spirit working in me. Let's lay down my life for others. Why? Because the Spirit's going to work in me to do it. He's going to empower me to accomplish this. So I'm motivated because I know He is within me. And I'm motivated because He is in me. That's a wild thought. And I want you to think about this for a second. 
I'm motivated because I know the Spirit is working in me because the Bible says He's in me. But I'm also motivated because He is working in me. Do you understand? It's not just a knowledge. It's not just an awareness of what the Scriptures say, but He is doing it. I know it. You know why? Because the Bible says it. And you are not looking at the same man. And you all know that you're not the same people that you were before the Spirit came and lived in your life, right? If you're born again, you're living different, aren't you? Why? Because the God of the Bible literally indwells His people to work within them. This concept of God's presence being the motivation for our life is found throughout the Scriptures. It starts way back in Genesis. Did you know Jacob said in Genesis 35.3, And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He knew that God was with him. Moses says in Exodus 33.15, Then he said to him, And this is after, remember, the golden calf and the situation. And he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Look, God, I don't want to go if you're not going with me. The presence, the understanding of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is phenomenal. It's the thing that makes us do what we do. He is the one that moves us. God says to Joshua, and Joshua 1, 9, I love these. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For you're a powerful man. You can do it, Joshua. No, for the Lord, Yahweh, your God is with you wherever you go. Absolute victory. Praise God. He gets it. And then when you come to the New Testament, do you think it just jumps up just a a little bit? Absolutely. I'm sorry. The the, the contrast is, it is, my favorite word, staggering. (laughs) You look at the difference from the disciples before Pentecost and look at them after. Isn't it startling? you got guys that are running for their lives to guys that are boldly standing up there, and when they're beat, they say, wow, this is great. What? They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake? These are totally different people. Why? The indwelling presence of the Spirit of God is why. Oh, yes. I'm a cessationist, but I love the Holy Spirit. You get this. I couldn't survive without him. This truth of God's presence heightens more and more as we walk through the book of Acts in this transition period. These are the things that motivate us, isn't it? Knowing Christ could return. Knowing the Spirit indwells us and is with us. And finally, 
the incredible glory of the message itself, of Jesus, the gospel. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Beloved, as I mentioned numerous times from our pulpit here, and arguably the greatest motivation in our understanding is our understanding of Jesus' person and work. This is the thing that I believe the Spirit is all about in our hearts. He is constantly revealing and illumining the glory of Christ as we study the Word. He's bringing to our minds a full understanding of how glorious our Savior is. And see, we are His witnesses. Why? Because we know who He is. And we will do anything. We will go anywhere. We will do what He says. We will obey. We will share our Lord because we know Him. We know how good He is. He is good. He is worthy of obeying, isn't He? We long to know Him more, don't we? I just want to know Him just a little bit more every week, don't you? Because it's that that motivates me to obey. If we are having a problem submitting to authorities in our life, I would argue that it comes back to our awareness and delight in Jesus. If our understanding of Jesus is small and our delight in Him is small, obedience is nowhere to be found. We can obey for people to like us. We can obey to not get in trouble. We can obey so that people will say, you're pretty good. But obeying authorities when it's difficult only comes with a big view of Jesus and an understanding of His glory. Do you understand? Do you know Him? Do you know how good He is? Does He cause you, and your awareness of Him, does He cause you to obey Him? Beloved, I I don't want to oversimplify the Christian walk, but it really boils down to this. Our satisfaction with the glory of Christ determines our obedience to Him. It really does. How much we enjoy Christ determines how well we obey Him. Is that not truth? If He is just a side note in your life, you won't obey Him. You'll obey Him like a side note. If he is your life and you know how great and glorious he is, you want to do everything for him all the time. We sin because we're not satisfied with Christ. We reject authorities over us because we're not satisfied with Jesus. We're selfish because we're not satisfied with what we have in Christ. And what we know about Him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus spent three and a half years revealing Himself in all His glory to the apostles. This revelation changed these men's lives, didn't it? I mean, He gave them convincing proof after convincing proof after convincing proof that He had risen from the dead and had victory over sin and death. 
And what did they do? Twelve ordinary men turned the world upside down. They knew he was coming back. They knew the spirit was in them, that God was with them, and they knew the glory of the message. Simple! Yet so hard, isn't it, at times? Why is it so hard? Because we like to play in mud puddles instead of bask in the glory of our Savior. We are so easily satisfied by the things of this world instead of joyfully delighting in our Savior continuously. We see here, what are the right motivations of a biblical ministry? An awareness of the imminent return of Christ. An awareness of the Spirit's indwelling presence in our life. And an awareness of the glory of the message of Jesus Christ. These things should motivate us. Not guilt. Not shame. Not fear of man. But Jesus. The Spirit. And the Father's plan for His Son to return. Notice, second, the right expressions of a biblical ministry. Verses 12 to 14, we begin to see it. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In these verses, we get a glimpse into what a biblical ministry looks like. You say, where's that biblical ministry? It's there, I promise. Those who have been properly motivated by the gospel... Demonstrate proper characteristics expressing or manifesting the change, the right heart. We see right here the right expressions of biblical ministry include a diligent obedience, constant or consistent unity, fervent prayer, gracious leadership. And we'll add next week, following the of following the scriptures or the apostles' teaching. Let's start with the first right expression of a biblical ministry, diligent obedience, diligent obedience. You see this in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. The apostles obeyed what the Lord had said. Jesus had told them, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father, for what the Father had promised. So what did they do? Well, they returned to Jerusalem, and they wait. Now, when you first read over this, you think, well, that's not a big deal. You know, if Jesus told me to go to Jerusalem and stay in Jerusalem, I'd say, no problem, no big deal, right? Well, you know, you need to think about this for a second, because 
this command to obey might not be super rational to them at that moment. And for the world, for, for lack of a better term, notice these were Galileans. The, the angels had mentioned this in verse 11. He says, men of Galilee. Now, where is Galilee? Galilee's in the northern part of Israel. Listen, Galileans didn't hang out with people of Jerusalem like, oh, this is a great place to live. They were considered like the, the, the lower class people, you know, the fishermen. They weren't the really religious people. They weren't really uh, well educated. We see this when we look over, and you'll see it when we get over in, in Acts chapter 4, when they're confronted. These men were with Jesus, but they were just, you know, untrained men. They were just fishermen. They were Galileans. So what I want you to do is go hang out in Jerusalem. And listen, it wasn't just a small time. Second, they, they were in town that hated them. <laughs> do you understand? Remember when Jesus died and rose from the dead, where were they found that first night? In the upper room with the doors locked. For fear. Listen, they were going back to Jerusalem. Hey, why not go Go the other way? <laughs> Don't go from the Mount of Olives back into Jerusalem. Let's go to Galilee. Come on, let's just go to Galilee. Let's skip because after all, Matthew 28, he took them to Galilee previously and said, Look, go make disciples of all nations. Let's go there. <laughs> why Jerusalem? You say, well, that's not rational to their minds. But what did they do? They obeyed anyway. They were hiding in this upper room. Third, they were all staying together in the upper room. In verse 13 it says, When they had entered the city, they went up, into the, went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you might think, well, that's no big deal. That's a big deal. Move 12 guys into your house. And there were more. And it wasn't a house the size of probably any of us in the room. Probably one big room. And it wasn't just one night. Do you realize that it was 40 days he appeared to them? But Pentecost happens 52 days after. So there was 10 days of living with these guys. And it already had been that way. You guys, I don't know about you, I love you, but I don't want you all moving in with me. That ain't a small call. People have a problem living with their roommates and their spouses, much less a bunch of men staying in their house, right? And there were more than just 12 as 114 and 23 implies, there could have been up to 100 people hanging out in that area. 100 people? Fourth, they were waiting for something they had never experienced before. Now think about that. Power's coming. The Spirit's coming. He's going to do some great things. What's the Spirit? And what are these great things? Trust me. Obey. Go to Jerusalem.
The world had never been baptized by the Holy Spirit before, but they were waiting hundreds of miles away from their homes with a bunch of men for something they had never experienced before. Hmm. I think they were motivated, weren't you? Weren't they? I'm going to obey you. And they obeyed and waited the ten days before Pentecost. We know it was ten days, like I said, because of the Jewish calendar. Because it was 50 days from two days after Passover to Pentecost. And we know Jesus was with them for 40 days. So a minimum of 10 days was spent waiting in the upper room. Let me ask you about obedience. When do we obey? Do we obey only when we understand it fully? Do we obey only when it's easy to obey? Do we obey only when we feel like obeying? No, no, no. We must obey the authorities that we have in our life always. Always. Why? Are there any exceptions? Yeah, there's one. One exception. Get it, you ready? One exception. If the authority is telling you to go against God, that's the only time. Wait a second. You're telling me I'm supposed to obey even when it's not rational? You're telling me I should obey even when it's not really fair? You're telling me I should obey like this always? Authorities over our lives? Yes. How do we do this? Only if we understand that God is the one that puts the authorities over us. <laughs> is that not true? When we drive down the road, we look at a, a, a speed limit sign and we say 65 miles an hour. Well, it really doesn't mean 65. Oh, you're telling me you shouldn't speed? Take that up with the king. That's a wild thought, isn't it? I think we have a hard time with authorities in our life, don't we? I think by nature we hate it when somebody tells us what to do. Don't we? If a boss tells you to be on time, we say, well, I can be five minutes late. It's okay. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is not our norm, right? We don't want to do this. Ha! Do you get this? But if we're properly motivated by the Lord and His glory, we will want to do what He wants us to do. This isn't normal, is it? By the way, just make sure that you don't put yourself under if you have the uh, ability and God has given you the ability to choose where you should go. Don't put yourself under a, a, an authority that's going to make you focus on the wrong things. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, don't move to a church that's going to make you wear a certain length of skirt. And focus on that so much that you're going to miss the whole point. 
Now, do I think y'all should dress appropriately? Absolutely. Please love your brothers. But are we going to pull out a measuring stick when you walk through the door? That's a focus on the wrong things. And I would argue also the version of the Bible you read too. <gasps> Those are added biblical concepts. Be careful. At the same time, if you're in a place and you work for a certain person and you put yourself under authority, then guess what? Listen, if you're going to change churches because you just don't like the authority over you, please don't come to our church. Did you hear me? This is not the church for you. If you just don't want to submit to the authorities above you, that's a problem. Now, if the authorities above you are not biblical and they're not pointing you to Christ, run! We've got a church for you. When Christ is all satisfying, we will obey authorities in our life. Do you understand? When we are aware of the spirits of presence in our life, we will obey authorities in our life. This is arguably the great expression of a biblical life, isn't it? In ministry, obedience. You know what? Here's what I, I, I long for, for a Grace Bible Church. I want an obedient church. How about that one? I want a church that looks at the Bible and says, I'm going to stick with what it says and I'm going to do what he says to do. Is that what y'all want? And that's because we know the glory of the gospel. And we want to follow him. Also, we see that it's consistent unity. (laughs) This is what it's about. Notice in verse 14, I love this. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Unity of mind is a clear expression, manifestation of a true biblical ministry. Contrary to popular belief, many of the seeker-sensitive churches don't have true unity. They have unity in tolerance for the sake of self-justification, but that's about it. They don't have unity in Christ and wanted to obey Him and serve Him. But biblical church unity is based on upon similar doctrine and affections. We are unified by our common love for Christ, His Word, and His people. We are unified by our common love for Christ His, that's found in Scripture. This is exactly what we see in this early church. Unity in thought, attitude, and practice. These all with one mind. Now, were these men different? Yes. Was there diversity? Absolutely. There was some diversity going on. You got a tax collector and fisherman. Bare minimum. But they had unity. With one mind. Look over at Acts 4. You see this theme continues to go throughout Acts. 
In Acts 4.24, And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Ladies and gentlemen, you see with one accord, these men lifted up their voices with one accord. I'm afraid that if we all started speaking at the same time, it wouldn't sound anything like that (laughs) at times. We're so focused on our own agendas, right? Is that not true? Our, it, our culture teaches that, doesn't it? Our, constantly, our culture is constantly screaming at you. Have your own independent thoughts. Be your own person. Do whatever you want to do. Think whatever you want to think. Doesn't that, isn't that what our culture is telling us? But Scripture says we should be Unified in our thoughts. What are our thoughts? Christ. The gospel. The glory of Him. 432, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to them. Him was His own, but all things were common property to them. Boy, that hasn't happened The name it and claim it guys use this one regularly, though, so they can get their new Rolls Royce. Don't they? They don't buy every one of the people in the congregation a Rolls Royce, though. Shame on them. And the congregation of those who believe were one heart and soul. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place in 512 among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. By this time, you already got thousands. Thousands of people. You got thousands of people coming together and with one accord? Man, we got a million splits going on all the time, don't we? Have you ever done a study of church history? Man, it is unbelievable. It is, it, it's amazing. There are like, it looks like a spider web when you really lay it out there. Now, God is working in all these splits. I get it. I understand that. But all too often, we think we've got it all figured out. And we don't focus in on the main thing, the gospel 1525, and it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Man, can you imagine? Yeah, we have. Can you imagine sending out in 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 the church in America, sending out uh, uh, missionaries? If it was based on a, uni- uh, a unanimous voice of a church, it normally doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen in our culture. Why? Because we're all so self-focused. But what is an expression of a true biblical ministry? Unity. And the epistles were constantly pointing this out. Look at Ephesians 4.2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all 
through all and in all. That's what he says, right? Or how about Philippians 2? Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is what they constantly were saying. Be unified, be unified, be unified. What? In Christ. In the gospel. And if we're properly motivated, we will be. Yet, we have to be told that over and over and over, don't we? It's amazing to me how often I've seen people within the body hold grudges against their own brothers and sisters. What have we forgotten when that happens? The gospel. Oh, our church should be different, shouldn't it? How do we have this unity? How do we get it? Answer. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Whose opinion is most important? Our culture? Mine! That's not a biblical ministry. Biblical ministry is unified in the gospel and all about laying down our lives for others. See, once again, we see an expression of biblical ministry flows from a proper understanding of the gospel. That's how you have well over 100 people get along. So again, the apostles were united in mind and practice Third, we see fervent prayer. Oh, folks, look at this. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. <laughs> I was interested. I mean, I, I love Mark Dever. I, I, I like Mark Dever. I think he's great. Nine marks of a healthy church. You know what I was reading? That's not one of the marks of a healthy church. I was surprised. I'm going to write him. It needs to be changed. Ten marks of a healthy church. <laughs> Don't you agree? I mean, you look through Acts, that's what they do all the time. They're praying. Would you not agree? Fervent prayer, that's what a biblical ministry is all about. We should be the prayers. This is a real contrast from the disciples before, beloved. Before the cross and the resurrection, previously in the upper room, you know what they were doing? They couldn't get along. They were arguing over who's the greatest. And then when they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says, pray, they fall asleep. You know what? I found something that was just interesting to me as I was studying. I did a word study of the word prayer. Pray, prayer, all that that word throughout the New Testament in the Gospels. Do you realize that the Disciples are never described as praying, not one time. Not one time. They ask, how should we pray? But they're never described as praying. Not one time. But when you look at Acts, it's like they're praying all the time. And you know what struck me is is that Jesus is described as praying. 
throughout the Gospels. He would go away to pray. And he'd be praying all the time. And they're like, this guy's praying. This guy's praying all the time. Cross happens, resurrection happens, and let's go pray. And they were continually devoting themselves to prayer for 10 days waiting on the Spirit to come. Who are these guys? Something amazing has happened. Right motivation. They got the gospel. I'm convinced that prayer is a discipline that is widely neglected by all of us. (laughs) Would you not agree? But it's mandatory for a biblical ministry to succeed. I'm also convinced that prayer is mandatory for each single person within the church. We should be praying regularly. Are you getting up mornings praying? Are you going to sleep praying? Are you praying for your brothers and sisters? Previously the disciples had asked how to pray and now they're actually doing it. And throughout Acts, look at it. It goes over and over and over. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. That's the end of Acts 1, before the Spirit comes. They're praying. Acts 6, 6, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. Acts 10, 9, And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on his housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Different guy, isn't it? Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Yes, it says fasting. Something I'm still going to be working on studying. We're going to think on this some more. The reality is this. Prayer is often associated with fasting. Interesting. Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Over and over again, folks, prayer is an expression of the early church. And over and over again, we see the apostles exhorting others to pray. So what should we do? Pray. And why should we pray? Because of the gospel. Because we know him. We all need to resolve to pray more, don't we? Man, my my dream is is on on nine o'clock Sunday morning, one day we have a hundred people out there praying. That's my prayer, Brad. You know he's here every Sunday morning at nine, and I know single people. It's hard for us to get up. But man, could you imagine? And I know, married couples, you got children, it's hard to get there. But man, I want to be a praying church, don't you? I want to be a church that's really sincerely, genuinely, fervently seeking Christ. That's why we do it at Bible studies, that's why we pray. It's a mark of a successful ministry, isn't it? Interestingly, I got to thinking about the circles we associate with, the Reformed Calvinistic churches. I would say this is a weakness in our churches. We know the grace of God, but yet we are probably the we probably don't pray 
as much as our, you heard it right, brothers and Armenian brothers and sisters. I think we have a wrong view of prayer. I would say this is a weakness, wouldn't you? So here's my exhortation. Brad does a prayer thing every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Leads it. Come join us, please. I want you to make a point to pray and seek the Lord every morning. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for Mark? Will you pray for Ronaldo? Guys, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to just tell it like it is. We are vulnerable men. We are. We are just men, aren't we, Mark? We need you to pray for us. Will you? Will you pray for this church? Will you pray for the marriages? Every marriage is vulnerable, isn't it? Yes. Please pray for us. This is what a biblical ministry looks like. Next week we'll deal with the last one. Let's pray.